You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If you enjoy this show and if you'd like instant access to over 60 bonus episodes that have never been on the main podcast, then go on over now to www.patreon.com slash attaboysecret and become a co-producer. Not only will you get a secret podcast feed that's exclusively yours, but you'll also get hundreds more hours of Attaboy Clarence and a monthly invite to watch a movie with me and the other co-producers in a special private online screening room. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month. Go to patreon.com slash attaboysecret or look for the link in the show notes. Only takes a moment. I'll wait here for you, don't worry. Hello, hello, and welcome along to Attaboy Clarence, where this week I'll be telling you all about three film noirs that'll darken up your November viewing. One of which is so dark and corrosive that it might leave you wanting a shower afterwards. But first up, I'm in the market for a new car. I'm thinking maybe a Pontiac. Is this new Pontiac equipped with freewheeling? Naturally. Has it synchro silent second? Of course. Is the body by Fisher? Certainly. When you honk the horn, does it go, ah ha, ah ha, ha, Naturally. When you reverse the car, does it go, eat, 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 eat? Certainly. Literally, this is my dream car. Well, apparently Pontiac has all the latest developments of automotive engineering. Absolutely. That is why Pontiac is today the chief of values. I'm going to get so many ladies in this thing. Okay, here we go. You had a plan in money, 1922. You let other women make a fool of you. Why don't you do right like some other men do? Get out of here and get me some money, too. You're sitting down wondering what it's all about. You ain't got no money, they will put you out. Why don't you do right, like some other men do? Get out of here and get me some money, too. If you had prepared 20 years ago, you wouldn't be a wonder now from door to door. Why don't you do right? Like some other men do Get out of here And get me some money too
you're jiving and I took you in Now all you got to offer me is a drink of gin Why don't you do right like some of the men do Get out of here and get me some money too Why don't you do right like some other men do And that was Peggy Lee with Why Don't You Do Right. So when is a noir not a noir? That's the question I posed to you while telling you about 1941's I Wake Up Screaming, which in fact is recognized as one of the earliest examples of film noir, which fascinatingly doesn't adhere to the label in many ways. The shadows are there, certainly, and the streets it portrays are certainly mean ones, but at its heart it's also a tantalizing mystery and a fascinating and sometimes twisted character study that doesn't mind dipping its tone to some very uncomfortable territory. The story here is of Frankie Christopher, played by Victor Mature, a hotshot promoter who seems to have the Midas touch. On a whim, he bets his two dinner companions, ex-actor Robin Ray, played by Alan Mowbray, and gossip columnist Larry Evans, played by Alan Jocelyn, that he can turn their waitress, Vicky, played by Carol Landis, into a star. Hello, Christopher. Hello, Ray. Miss Lynn, I'd like you to meet the famous actor, Robin Ray. Actor? Really? How do you do? Listen, you little hash slinger, don't give me any of that lady Vierdevier stuff or I'll bite you. Am I overdoing it? Yes, but not bad. Well, of course, using some of the tricks he's picked up, it isn't long before this shy out-of-towner is the city's most sought-after arm candy. But Frankie and his chums haven't counted on the fact that fame corrupts. In fact, as the offers continue to flood in, Vicky's true nature is revealed. Well, I have some brains, too. It was me they were interested in. Some people think I'm a very attractive girl. You didn't create that. I'm no Frankenstein, you know. I wonder. This is in stark contrast to Vicky's sister, Jill, played by Betty Grable, who hates the fact that fame and adulation have turned Vicky into a monster. From that moment on, life became just one great dizzy world for her. She was asked everywhere. She got offers to pose for advertisements, model clothes, entered the aqua cave, joined the ice ballet, every possible form of publicity. She even remembered the singing lessons Mom had paid for and suddenly started to fancy herself as a chanteuse. Frankie even managed to get her a job singing with a name band. And finally, one morning, things came to a climax. But then, one night, a sudden, savage act turns the whole story on its head. You know what's good for you? You come clean. When did you find the body? Why'd you do it? I didn't do it. You said that before. All right, now say it again. I can keep it up as long as you can. Listen, brother, you don't seem to get the idea at all. You're gonna fry for this. It means the hot spot. It does if you can pin it on me, but I don't think you can. Yes, Vicky has been found murdered, and all fingers are pointing toward Frankie. But did he do it? Investigating the crime is Detective Ed Cornell, played by Laird Krieger, who for some reason seems to have the bitterest of grudges towards Frankie. But could that be because Cornell himself has something to hide? 
This is the film that reignited my recent obsession with noir. I think there's a tendency to get stuck in the many tropes that noir is famous for. You have your lightning dialogue and your moodiness and your sultry dames and your hard-bitten heroes and those forever shadows. Always the shadows. I think they're all wonderful, of course. But I do find that sometimes I confuse one plot with another, end up confusing one film with another. I think also an overindulgence of noir can lead to a certain bleakness. I remember watching Seven in one day once, and by the end, the whole world was just a little bit darker for me. That's why I love this movie so much. It plays by the rules of noir, but it also does something different. It adds a truly compelling mystery that's easy to follow and which remains genuinely baffling. I mean, until the actual killer is revealed, I had no idea who'd done it. Despite following the clues without any confusion, it really was all to play for. But what it then does is adds this totally batshit third act when we discover that identifying the killer was only part of the story. There's another subplot running beneath it all that comes up for air after the killer is revealed, during which we discover that what we've actually been watching is a very sinister tale of obsession. It's a brave move and a real sucker punch to those who think this is going to play by some kind of formula. Top all that off with some outstanding performances by Carol Landis as the spoiled brat, Vekabachar as the man being hunted on all sides, Betty Grable in a rare dramatic role, and who really proves that she was way more than just a pair of legs, and a devastatingly dark turn by Laird Krieger, who once again proves why he was one of the most interesting actors to have enriched the golden age. And there are still surprises to be had, I assure you. If you haven't seen it, then 1941's I Wake Up Screaming will shock, appall, thrill, and enchant you. It's wonderful. Seek it out without delay. On to a story by one of my favorite mystery authors, Mr. Cornell Woolrich. By 1946, he'd become one of those authors who was being adapted like crazy in Hollywood, no matter what the story was. Black Alibi had become the Leopard Man. Phantom Lady had been turned into a wonderful noir. Black Angel, Street of Chance, Deadline at Dawn, Rear Window, which came in 54, was one of his short stories. You get the idea. Anyway, one of his lesser efforts, The Black Path of Fear, was turned into a 1946 noir thriller called The Chase, which, in my opinion, kind of improves the book which is all flashbacks and which has always struck me as one of his least interesting books. It's almost as though he had his first draft published. The book begins with a girl being murdered in a Cuban nightclub and the man she's with being interrogated and accused of the crime by the Cuban police. Through flashbacks, we read that they've run away from the girl's ex, who's a violent gangster. And really, all the fleshing out is done through these flashbacks. The film version, released in 1946, The Chase wisely chooses to play the thing out chronologically instead. So this is The Chase then, starring Robert Cummings, Michelle Morgan, Steve Cochran, and Peter Lorre. What was it you just said it to do? I said I wanted to see Mr. Roman. What for? Well, I, I've got something for him. Could mean a lot of things. What have you got? You're not Mr. Roman. How do you know? Well, you just don't fit. As you heard there, we open with a down-and-out ex-serviceman, Chuck Scott, played by Cummings, finding a wallet stuffed with money. 
Instead of using the contents to get himself back on his feet, he returns it to its owner, one Eddie Roman, played by Steve Cochran, who, it transpires, is one of the nastiest gangsters in the city. Mr. Roman, could I ask you a very personal question? Yes, of course. What is your business, really? Gino, what business would you say we were in, really? Oh, I'd say the amusement business. The amusement business? Yeah, strictly for laughs. Eddie is impressed by Chuck's honesty and employs him as his personal driver. Things are complicated, though, when Chuck meets and falls in love with Eddie's wife, the beautiful and desperately unhappy Lorna, played by Michelle Morgan. It would be worth a thousand dollars to me to get to Havana. A thousand dollars? Yes. Steamship tickets only about 30. I could never make it alone. Why not? Have you ever been afraid? Really afraid? What do you want me to do? I want you to take me to Havana. But why me? I think I can trust you. Together, they plot to run away together to Cuba, which drives Eddie into a jealous rage. Together with his henchman, Gino, played by Peter Lorre, they give chase. So obviously, as I said at the top, Lorna is murdered in a nightclub. But who exactly did it? And why? Can't spoil anything else, because despite what you might be thinking, if you're going into this film brand new, you're still going to be quite surprised at what actually happens. I'm not massively familiar with Steve Cochran, but on the strength of his performance here, I will definitely be seeking out more of his work. His gangster, Eddie Roman, is one of those truly chilling forces of nature that feels utterly dangerous at all times. Within the first half hour of the movie, he's punched a beautician for having nicked his finger, and I kid you not, fed a man to a hungry dog for having refused to sell something to him. Likewise, Peter Lorre is ice cold as Gino, who seems like an even more malevolent version of Eddie, always hanging by his side and ready to finish his boss's sentences. I'm not the biggest Robert Cummings fan in the world. I always find him a little bit too smug, but he is fairly engaging in this, and Michelle Morgan is smouldering as the tragic Lorna. I wish I could go into what happens after the murder, but unfortunately the huge and somewhat monumental plot revelations are something you need to experience fresh. Suffice to say that I do recommend this movie. It's a great example of a sweat-soaked, man-on-the-run noir with a truly magnetic villain that'll prove a real treat for your noir member viewing if you haven't seen it. Do keep your eyes out for 1946's The Chase. It's in the public domain, so it's online. Now, when you think of film noir, you immediately see shadows and darkness, which makes my final choice all the more surprising. I've seen some people argue that this isn't a true noir, but what those people fail to understand is that shadows and darkness are sometimes on the inside. This is one of the brightest movies in terms of lighting. It's set mainly in the desert, and most of the time you'll find yourself squinting at the sun. But it is also, I promise you, 
one of the darkest movies ever made. It's a classic already. It was criminally ignored upon its release. But since then, it's found a legion of admirers, and rightly so. It's a devastatingly dark story of corruption that discusses everything from journalistic practices to the public's thirst for tragedy. From exploitation and greed to the distortion of the American dream. Directed by Billy Wilder and starring a never better Kirk Douglas, this is 1951's Ace in the Hole. I'd like to see the boss. What'd you say his name is? I didn't say. Cagey, huh? Mr. Boot is the owner and publisher. Okay, tell Mr. Boot Mr. Tatum would like to see him. Charles Tatum from New York. What about? Look, fan, just ask him, how would he like to make himself a fast $200 a week? What did you say you were selling? Insurance? I didn't say. Cagey, huh? Chuck Tatum is a formerly drunk and newly exiled reporter who's left behind him a career built on sensationalism and underhandedness. After being blacklisted by the city's papers, he's found his way to New Mexico and to the offices of the Albuquerque Sun Bulletin, where he talks his way into a job. Mr. Boot, I'm a $250 a week newspaper man. I can be had for 50 Why are you so good to me? I know newspapers backward, forward, and sideways. I can write them, edit them, print them, wrap them, and sell them. Don't need anybody right now. I can handle big news and little news. And if there's no news, I'll go out and bite a dog. One year passes and Chuck is going stir-crazy. He misses the action of city life, but slowly he's become trapped by the provincial life in this sleepy town. All he needs is one big story, a sensation that'll allow him to buy his way back into the big time. He finds it buried in a partially collapsed mine shaft. Local man Leo Minosa is trapped there, and using his wiles, Chuck first manages to gain Leo's trust, and then manages to turn the story into a nationwide sensation about the race against time to save Leo's life. I'm writing the lead to the story. Well, what is the story? Big. It's big as they come, I think. Maybe bigger than Floyd Collins. Floyd Collins plus. Plus what? Plus King Tut. You remember that one, don't you? The curse of the old Egyptian pharaoh when they came to rob his tomb? How's that for an angle? King Tut in New Mexico. Curse of the old Indian chief. White man, half buried by angry spirits. What will they do? Will they spare him? Will they crush him? Give it to me straight, Chuck. How does it look? Can they get him out? Certainly. Well, how soon? I don't know. Floyd Collins lasted 18 days. I don't need 18 days. If I just had one week of this... Oh, brother. You're kidding, Chuck. You don't really wish for anything like that. I'm not wishing for anything. I don't make things happen. All I do is write about it. The thing is, Leo could be rescued at any time. Chuck, seeing the world suddenly falling at his feet, decides that maybe Leo could spend a little while longer in the mine so that he can use the extra time to buy his way back to respectability. And I cannot say another word. You know sometimes when you watch a movie and the tension becomes so unbearable that you simply cannot wait till the end to find out how the thing will play out, when it has you so completely by the throat that all you want is sweet relief. 
Such is the feeling of watching Ace in the Hole for the first time, one of the most powerful film noir dramas ever made. You will be shocked at how grand the scale of this thing is. First in terms of script, it has one of the most acidic scripts ever spoken out loud, fully worthy of the darkest of Billy Wilder's other acerbic outings, but also visually. The sight of thousands upon thousands of people camped outside the mine, praying for Leo, cheering on Chuck as he bravely makes his way to the cave-in, leaping from trains, I mean, when we hit the two-thirds mark and you gaze at the crowds and what they've become, it's a truly breathtaking sight. When I tell you that it turns into a media circus, I mean that absolutely literally. It's simultaneously appalling and enchanting. The real sight to behold, though, is the utterly contemptuous Chuck Tatum, played majestically by Kirk Douglas. Chuck Tatum is without doubt one of the most reprehensible, villainous, most twisted characters in all of cinema. His darkness knows no bounds. He is the spider at the center of a very fragmented web who plays upon goodwill and kindness to fuel his dark ambitions. Never before have I spent so long in the company of such a loathsome person and yet been so completely fascinated by his every move. Look, Mrs. Minoza, your husband's stuck under a mountain. You're worried sick. That's the way the story goes. I get the smile off your face. It's been a nice day, Chuck. I feel like smiling. You heard me. Get it off. Take me. That's more like it. Don't wipe those tears. That's the way you're supposed to look. Put on your wedding ring. Go on back and peddle your hamburgers. Kirk Douglas is magnificent in this movie. Utterly compelling. The most hypnotic thing about the film is the way in which you think it can't stoop lower. And then it upsets that expectation and goes down three more floors. I guarantee that by the end of Ace in the Hole, you will need a shower. And you will also be certain that despite the glare of the sunshine that permeates the entire film, you have just witnessed the blackest of darknesses. Well, for your radio entertainment this week, I present a brace of episodes featuring two of Noir's greatest detectives, Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe, who sprang from the minds of Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, respectively. From Sam Spade, we'll have the terrified turkey caper. And from Philip Marlowe, we'll hear the tale of the mermaid. So I'll hand you over to them now and let them lead you down the mean streets. See you afterwards. Sam Spade, the that was just business going on as usual during altercations, F. Well, what was it all about, sir? They tried, Effie, just tried to pluck my feathers and cook my goose. I'm done too. How could they? Oh, they were a mean lot. Are you all right? Hale and hearty, every giblet in place and not a feather ruffled. Did you have a nice Thanksgiving? Oh, it was heavenly. Mama had a turkey dinner, sage dressing, cranberry sauce, candy jams. Hard sighting? <laughs> a little. Calm, clean, Effie. Well, I, I, I had two glasses. Ah. Everyone was there. Cousin Gertie, Dwight, Mrs. Floss. I was disappointed when you didn't show up, Sam. 
Did you have Thanksgiving dinner? Sure. Huh? At the Helping Hand Rescue Mission, where there's plenty of free parking and never a covered charge. For further details, consult the report, which I will presently be down to dictate on a pasty chronicle of foul play. The terrified turkey caper. For NBC, William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, brings you the greatest private detective of them all in The Adventures of Sam Spade. Sam Oh, you were waiting for me. Having Thanksgiving dinner at a, at a rescue mission. And Mama cooked it perfectly wonderful. Ask your mother for me, Aunt. Tell her I'll be over to break wishbones with her tonight. And to atone for my social indifferences, here's a little something I brought for you. Oh, Sam. It's good now. It's beautiful. What is it? A blunderbuss. A blunder what? Bus. As in step to the rear of. Oh. Well, what does it do? Shoot, Seth. It's a gun. Our founding fathers used it in foraging for feathered food when they settled this abundant continent. And it's mine. To do with what you will. Where did you get it? Pencil poise? Yes, sir. Who gave it to you? Pad open? Oh, yes, but I don't know. Knees crossed? Did you mean the founding fathers? Don't peek. Date, November 24th, 1952. Detective Lieutenant I.C. Kelsey, Homicide Detail, San Francisco Police. From Samuel State, license number 137596. Subject, Turkey. Dear Kelsey... This was a big week for the cranberry pickers, the butchers, the sage makers, and the stomach pill people. But for private detectives, it was strictly from hunger. My office door opened only twice a day, once to let me in and once to let me out. And when on Wednesday I heard a knock on the door, I went into a paroxysm of delight. Come in! Come in! Come in! Entrez-vous! Entrez-vous! Elaine! When I ran out of languages, I got up from behind the desk, walked to the door, and opened it. Standing there was a small, middle-aged man with a pink, bald head. His blue serge suit needed pressing, and he was nervously fingering a strawberry birthmark under his left ear. Uh, Mr. Samuel State? I am. May, may I? May I have a moment? With you me? may have several, but not in the corridor. It's not in my lease. Oh, I'll come in. Good, good, good. Well? Well... You'll have to excuse me, Mr. Spade. I, I've had so few dealings with private detectives. I, I find it hard to begin. Well, I... Oh, perhaps I shouldn't have come at all. Goodbye. No, 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 wait a minute. Maybe I can help you. Well, well you see, I, I... Oh, what's the use? You won't believe me. Nobody does. I'd really better... Oh, now, wait. Wait. I'll believe you. All I ask is a chance. Now, now let's start with your name. Oh, what, my name? Yes. Yes. Yes, my name. To begin with, you won't believe that. Oh, oh, but I can verify it. Yes, I can. It's on this registration book of the old Colony Hotel in the 1943 phone book and on my old driver's license. Well, I'll have to know it before I can verify it. Oh, yes, yes, of course you will. It's, uh, it's Tom. Well, now that's not so hard to believe. Oh, you haven't heard the rest of it. It's Tom. Apparently. <laughs> You, you see, I told you you wouldn't believe it. I'd better go. No, no. Uh, let me be the first to believe you. Now, Mr. Uh, uh, Tom, uh, what's your problem? Oh, dear. Dear, that's even harder to explain. Well, now that I don't believe. But uh, take a breath and jump into it. Yes, yes. My name is Tom Turkey, and they're going to kill me for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. <laughs> 
Well, I had asked for it, and I had gotten it. And I sat back wondering who had gone to all the trouble to play this funny joke on her. I was looking at my hand to see if there was any itching powder on it where he'd shaken it when my phone rang. I lifted the receiver, swung around in my swivel, and gazed out onto the street. It was Al Kuchel calling, a private eye whose reputation was shadier than a mushroom cellar. Hiya, Spady. Al. Haven't seen much of you lately, Spady. You have to get together. Yeah, well, so long. Wait, wait, I'll tell you why I called. I've had a pest in my office, keeps coming back. Thinks he's a turkey, somebody wants to dress. I brushed him, but your name came up, and I just wanted to warn you. He might be in to see you. I'm confused, Al. I never knew you to turn your back on a butt. Oh, I don't want any of this one. His buttons are loose. My advice to you is to bounce him. Well, we've never traded advice before, Cucho. Why now? Well, after all, we're in the same racket. If we can't help each other... Oh, sure, Al, sure. I appreciate it. Give me a ring. We've got to get together sometime. Yeah, when I get a free night, we'll Jimmy parking meter. Yeah, we... Huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Parking meters. I'll see you later, Spady. I turned back to the desk, and what I saw in front of me was an empty chair. Tom Turkey had taken wing. I got up and walked to the window, and a minute later, I saw him come out of the building downstairs and start to cross the street. And then I saw something else. A large four-ton truck was tearing down the street, picking up speed. Instinctively, I shouted a warning. And at the last second, Tom Turkey scrambled from in front of the truck and disappeared into the alleyway. The truck roared up the street, and on its side was printed in gold letters, Haynes, you drive it. There was nothing to say it wasn't coincidence, this near mishap. But somehow I found myself intrigued and wanting to hear more of the little guy's story. He said the old Colony Hotel. On the way, I stopped at the library, found an old 1943 phone book, and looked. He was listed. Thomas Turkey, it said. Out of curiosity, I rang the number. Hello? I wonder if you can help me. I'm inquiring about a Mr. Turkey. Turkey? This ain't his number no more. I know. Haven't had any calls from him for years. Call him out. Yeah, I know, I know. I knew a woman named Rabbit once. Mrs. Rabbit. About Turkey. Could you remember what he looked like? I don't. Hey, Manny, what Turkey looked like? Huh? Uh-huh. 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 Yeah, yeah. Small man, round 50. Nice fellow, Manny says. Strawberry under his left ear? Strawberry under his left ear, Manny. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, strawberry under his left ear. Well, thank you, madam, for your information, and thanks to Manny. Well, you're welcome, but I don't know what you're going to do with it. Old man Turkey's dead. Been dead for years. <laughs> Curiouser and curiouser, I thought. They had described the man who came to my office 20 minutes ago. And now he'd been dead for years. I continued on to the old Colony Hotel. Room, 75 cents, it said. Tom's room was 114. Who is it? Sam Spade. Oh, come in, Mr. Spade. Hmm. I'm, I'm sorry I ran away. I didn't think you really believed me. Well, I'm not sure I do yet. Tell me, was that truck an accident? Oh, I don't think so, no. They... They made three attempts before to kill me. Somebody tried to push me in front of a train, and then a wheelchair full of cement dropped off a building and just missed me, and then I was shot at. Oh, who were they, and why would they want to kill you? I don't know. I just don't know. Look, let's pack. Pack? Pack. I dialed your old phone number, and the people who answered said you're dead. Oh, a lot of people think I'm dead. Yeah. Look, do you still want me to work for you? Oh, yes, yes. Please. Well, you'll have to tell me more, then. I can't... I, I guess I'd better tell you everything. Oh, it's, it's hard to talk about, Mr. Spade. It's not easy to admit to someone you've been a foolish man. You see, I just turned 50. I was quite tired of the life I'd led. Proper, dull, and unfruitful, accepting money. My business was wearing, and 
so was my wife, Henrietta. This has a traditional ring. Anyway, to make it short, I decided to run away. One day I drove to work. I parked my car in the middle of the Bay Bridge where the suicide note left it and disappeared. Where did you go? Oh, all over the world. I took a job on a boat. I did. On a boat. And then I settled in San Paulo, Brazil, under another name. Now you're back. Why? Maybe I got lonely. Maybe I got wiser. Maybe... Maybe I felt I paid enough for my mistakes. Let's just say I'm back. I want to be with Henrietta. Have you seen her? I checked into this hotel and wrote her a letter saying I wasn't dead. I was back in San Francisco and I... I wanted to come back to her if she still would have me. But I told her I wouldn't bother her unless she wanted to see me. That she could contact me here. That was a week ago. And you haven't heard from her? No, no. And almost right away, these attempts on my life began. I see. All right, what's her address? 3118 Monroe. Oh, she's taken her maiden name again. Black Henrietta Black. Oh, come on, let's go. No, no, I'm not going to see her until she asks me. Look, you're going to my apartment. Nobody will bother you there. And you're going to see Henriette? That's right. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Spade. You, you do believe me. I think I'm really ready to face the world again now. I deposited Tom in my apartment with instructions to open the door for no one but me. And then I proceeded to 3118 Monroe in the high-rent district. I was ushered through a comely portico by a Japanese maid who told me to wait in a study heavy with mahogany. In a moment, two people came in. The woman wore a black dress, silver pendants, flat shoes, and a complexion the color of apple meat. She was Miss Henrietta Black and or Mrs. Tom Turkey. The man turned out to be Leander Luce, the lady's attorney, business manager, and canasta partner. You say you have something important to discuss with me, Mr. Spade? I do. I hope you don't mind my asking Mr. Luce to be here. Not at all. Well, Mrs. Turkey, I just talked to your husband, Tom. Mr. Spade, if you please. I say something? A rather feeble attempt at comedy, Mr. Spade. Well, I wasn't trying for a laugh. You are Mrs. Turkey, aren't you? I was. You undoubtedly still are. I'd expected to hear another one of these cruel jokes about my name. At Thanksgiving time, Mr. Spade, someone was always going to stuff Tom, base him, dress him, slice him. This season, they're going to kill him. They are not going to kill him. He is already dead. He's not dead, Mrs. Turkey. And you... Should not. I should. Yes, he sent you a letter saying he was back in San Francisco and wanted to see you. Mr. Spade, this has gone absolutely far enough. Not quite. What about the letter? I know of no such letter. I see. Well, thank you for your time. I'm sorry I bothered you. Oh, you used bad judgment in coming in the first place. Yes, maybe you're right. There was falsehood in this someplace, Lieutenant, and it stuck out like a fat girl in slack. The only thing to do was to go back to my apartment, get Tom Turkey, and confront Mrs. T with her husband in the flesh. But when I got back to my apartment building, I spotted in rapid succession, one, an ambulance, two, a police car, and upstairs, outside my half-open apartment door, I spotted three, you. I've been expecting you. What's going on, Kelsey? Yeah, serious, Sam, serious. Who's that bald-headed man moving around the apartment? That's McCracken, the new medical examiner, checking a stiff on your rug. <laughs> I stepped around you, Lieutenant, and pushed the door all the way open. I saw McCracken kneeling over the body and a couple of men from homicide taking photos. I moved into the room feeling nothing good. A little guy had given me a job, and while I was jacking with his wife, somebody got to him. And in my apartment, where I'd stashed him, McCracken stood up and I looked down at the body. Then I looked again. Who I saw wasn't Tom Turkey at all. It was the late private eye, Al Kuchel. listening to the weekly 
adventure of radio's most famous detective, Sam Spade. Friday fans of Sam Spade, there's mystery on Saturday evening, too, on NBC. Tomorrow, the man called X sets out on another mission of danger and intrigue in some far-off corner of the earth. Herbert Marshall stars as the man called X, a man without a name who travels the world over, protecting his country's interests. He lives by his wits, and his business is danger. He's the man called X, tomorrow over most NBC stations. For Top Sunday listening, it's another broadcast of The Big Show on NBC. This Sunday, your stars include Fred Allen, Jack Carson, Mindy Carson, Ed Archie Gardner, Ed Wynn, and many, many more. And Tallulah is your MC as usual. This Sunday, it's The Big Show on NBC. And now, back to the terrified turkey caper. Tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. While the men from Homicide were taking pictures, etc., you and I, Lieutenant, were going round and round on the question, if I didn't kill the man found in my room, who did? And you were sufficiently impressed with my insult, Chelsea, not to hold me for the murder. We bowed to each other, and I left. Thinking back to the truck that had almost run Turkey down, I went to the Haynes U Drive truck rental garage. <laughs> Hey, what do you want? I'm a detective. Could you give me a list of names for everybody who rented a truck from you during the past few days? Sure. He handed me a big registration book, and I read every name for the past week. For the first five days, they all seemed to be nice, normal, abnormal names. And then, under the rentals for the day before, was the name of John Smith. John had given his address as 7200 Kearney. And I happen to know that Kearney only goes up to 2000. The dispatcher said that Smith had returned the truck about three hours before, and he remembered him as an ugly, heavy-set, and rough-voiced character who looked like an ex-longshoreman. They had already washed the truck, so the fingerprints were all out of Well, it's Mr. Spade again. Look, I'd like to speak with Mrs. Turk, uh, Miss Black, if you don't mind. Come in. Come in. Thank you. This way. Into the den. Right. Well, I was sure you'd look into this affair a little more and realize that it was just a blind alley. A hoax of some kind. Where's Miss Black? Oh, she's upstairs lying down. The whole affair has upset her, and uh, she asked not to be disturbed. I think the wisest course of action for you, Mr. Spade, is just to let the matter drop. You can't let a murder just drop, Mr. Lewis. The police wouldn't hear of it. Huh? Murder? Who? An untracked private detective named Al Cucho. Well, what does this have to do with Henrietta Black? Al Cucho called me earlier today and said that Tom Turkey was a crackpot, a little man with delusions. He tried to top me off taking his case. He sounds like a perceiving man. Well, he didn't perceive ending up in my apartment with a bullet in his head. Well, that's too bad, but I still... I left Tom Turkey in my apartment for safekeeping, and when I returned, he was gone and Cucho was dead. Well, that explains itself, obviously. This detective knew that Tom Turkey was a phony, and Turkey killed him. It can figure that way, and a number of other ways. Mr. Fade, I have no desire to sit here trading subtleties with you. As yet, no one has demonstrated that the real Tom Turkey actually exists alive. Now, until you do have something more concrete and less mythological, Miss Black requests that you do not come around opening up old wounds. You've made an eloquent point. Just tell me one thing. 
if I can. When did Tom Turkey disappear? I mean, what month, what day? It was, uh... Oh, yes, uh, 1943, uh, November. But I'm not sure of the exact day. I think it was in the third week. Could it have been on Thanksgiving? Very possibly. Very possibly. I returned thoughtfully to my office and did a little rapid mental arithmetic and came up with a number seven. From November 23rd, 1943 to November 23rd, 1950 was seven years to the day. And I pondered this. What did the number seven mean to the life or death of Tom Turkey? I had just hit upon the answer and was crying Eureka when my office door opened, unknocked, and a visitor came in unannounced. He was ugly, heavy set, and looked like an ex-longshoreman. I waited to see if the voice checked. You spread? Who shall I say is calling? <laughs> Captain John Smith. And here's my calling card. The first first bullet grazed my shoulder and tore the padding out of my coat. The second bullet hit the water cooler and it crashed over, water and all on top of me. Where the third bullet hit, I wasn't sure at the time because darkness came mushing through my head like a freight. When I opened my eyes again, I expected to see St. Peter checking my ID card. But all I saw were the dust balls under my desk and a fly bathing himself in a pool of water spreading slowly over the floor. There was blood on my hand, but it came from a glass cut. I was in shambles, but alive. Captain John Smith had shoved off, obviously thinking his bullets had done their work. Homicide, Lieutenant Kelsey. Sam Kelsey, have you found anything more about Tom Turkey? Nothing, Sam. Frankly, I'm beginning to wonder if there is such a guy. Well, clever, Kelsey. A few minutes ago, a gorilla by the name, believe it or not, of Captain John Smith just tried to kill me in my office. Oh, go on, Sam. I find it hard to think. You find it hard to think, period. Really, Sam? Did you get him? No, but my office is a wreck, and there's a hole blasted in my wall big enough to put a basketball in. What did he use, a bazooka? I figured dum-dum bullets. Dum-dum? Well, that's illegal, ain't it? Kelsey! Doesn't it strike you as significant that every attempt on Turkey's life has been vicious, as if someone not only wanted to kill him, but also mutilate him? Yeah, yeah, now that you mention it. Somebody probably wanted to make identification difficult. Even dead, they didn't want anybody to know who he was. Now listen carefully, Kelsey, this is real deep. Tom Turkey disappeared on Thanksgiving of 1943. A person has to be missing seven years before he can be legally dead and his insurance collected. Now, if someone had Turkey insured, they could collect the day after this Thanksgiving. If Turkey didn't show up before. You mean somebody's trying to kill him for the insurance? I would say so, Kelsey. I would say so. Now hurry up and find him. When I put down the phone, I heard a heavy pounding. For a minute, I thought it was in my head. Until I turned to face the door, and standing there was a small pilgrim with bandy legs in black stockings, pantaloons... White collared coat and stove pipe hat. Hallelujah. He wore silver buckles, and what he was pounding on the floor was an 18th century blunderbuss. Hallelujah. Have I got the right place? Oh, offhand, I'd say so. If you're looking for Captain John Smith, he just left. Pocahontas is expected any minute. <laughs> now, don't you go trying to confuse me. I'm too thirsty. What's on your mind? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a fellow named Dan. Uh, uh, oh, I'm so thirsty, I forgot. Sam Spade? Yeah, that's it, that's it, yeah. Oh, oh, you broke your water bottle, huh? Yeah. Good, good. That stuff's poison anyway. Hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> hey, say, uh, do you happen to have any hard cider around? Fresh out. 
Oh. <laughs> I'm kind of thirsty, you know. Any type of corn squeezing? Here. Try this, Dad. <laughs> Good, huh? Uh-huh. You like that, huh? Oh. <laughs> Follow me. Uh, but before we go, do you suppose we could have a little something for the road? It's bitter cold. I gave him a little, but not too much, because I didn't want him to lose his way. He walked me right down Market Street so he could look in the liquor store windows. He said it gave him a comfortable feeling to know there was so much good in the world. And then we turned right a few blocks until we came to the Helping Hand Mission. Across its gray front, a banner promised special holiday food and comfort to the unfortunate. And on the street in front of it, there was a brass band sending out signals to the fraternity that any minute the great feast of Thanksgiving would begin. The band members and other volunteer workers were all dressed as children, but quaint conceit. My pilgrim led me to a dark corner of the club room, and sitting there unhappily was none other than Tom Turkey. Hello, Mr. Oh, hello, Tom. What happened to my apartment? And why did you run away? Well, I was afraid. You told me not to answer the door until you came back. Well, somebody knocked on the door and said it was you, so I opened it, and two men came in. Tell me, was one of the male Kuchel? Yes, the detective. The other man was a big, ugly-looking fellow, and when they saw I was alone, they started arguing. About what? Well, the detective said that now that he brought the ugly man there, he wanted his money. Yeah. The ugly man pulled a gun, and they started to fight. Oh, dear, I, I slipped out the door, and when I was halfway downstairs, I heard a shot and kept on running. Well, Al Kuchel is dead. Oh, my. I thought so. This was the only place I could think of to hide. Oh, when Henrietta finds out I've been mixed up in a murder, she'll never take me back. Henrietta. Hey, tell me, did your wife ever have any insurance on you? Oh, before I ran away, she did. A $50,000 policy, but, oh, that would have lapsed by now. Maybe, maybe. Did it have a suicide clause in it? A suicide? Yes. Uh, well, no. No, it didn't. I remember. Yeah. Yeah, you'd like to talk to Henrietta, wouldn't you? All right, here's your phone number. Call her up and tell her where you are. Oh, well, I, I don't think I could. I'm too frightened. You've got to do something to help yourself. If you don't, by midnight, you might be a cold turkey. Oh. I'm sorry. You just slipped out. All right. I'll do it. Well, he went and made the call. When he returned, he said that a man had answered who said Henrietta would come down and pick Tom up. He didn't want to wait, but I sat on him. The pilgrim brought us a dish of turkey dinner, saying he couldn't stand food himself, and we munched a spell. In a little while, a limousine pulled up in front of a mission with someone in back whom I couldn't see. The chauffeur stepped out and came in inquiring for Tom Turkey. It was Captain John Smith himself. When he saw me, a look of shocked surprise came over his unhandsome face. Hoping to catch him off balance, I drove at him. It was the liveliest thing that has happened at the Helping Hand Mission in years, and we have a good house, too. Money was even changing hands. When I heard the odds starting to go against me, I realized I'd better come up with something. Here, use it, partner. And I did. The bandy-legged pilgrim shoved his blunderbuss right in my hand. And I swung. Smith dropped my pheasant on the wing. I looked up. The passenger from the limousine was just coming in. Here, what's the meaning of this? It means, Leander Luce. That you're not going to carve Tom Turkey up for your Thanksgiving insurance policy. Hallelujah! <laughs> hey, drumstick, anyone? Period. End of report. Sam, 
wallets as plain as the cranberry stain on your dress. Loose, as Henrietta's business manager, had her power of attorney. And secretly, he kept making the payments on Tom Turkey's insurance policy. Oh, and then he'd collect for Henrietta and keep the money himself. Effie, sometimes your lightning mind frightens me. I'll go type that up. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. There's fun and laughs with the chimes later tonight when Ed Gardner stars in Duffy's Tavern. As usual, Duffy won't be there, but Archie, the manager, will definitely be on hand to serve his blue plate special of grilled English language. This Sunday, the big show comes your way again. Tallulah will be your hostess, and the stars include Fred Allen, Jack Carson, Edwin, Meredith Wilson, and many, many more. It's the big show, Sunday, on NBC. and tried to tell you. Was his name really Captain John Smith? Now, Wesley, could we have a Thanksgiving caper without a Captain John Smith? It wouldn't be right. It was a coincidence, wasn't it? Well, if you promise not to tell anyone. Oh. His real name was Michael Giuseppe Yablonski Smith. I called him John for short. You're so kind. Mm-hmm. Are we going over to your mother's for cold turkey snacks? Well, all right, but I don't think there'll be much left. Oh? You see, my cousin Judy couldn't find a little boy. And Mother phoned and said they just found him. Mm-hmm. He was inside the turkey, eating his way out. Effie, is there no way to curb that tongue of yours? <laughs> There's one way. Well, come here. Oh. Oh. Good night, Good night, sweetheart. Adventures of Sam Spade are produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade was played by Stephen Dunn. Lorene Tuttle is Effie. Script for tonight's adventure by Larry Roman and John Michael Hayes. Musical scoring by Lud Gluskin, conducted by Robert Armbrister. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the graves. This started with a wreck and went from there to double murder over 75,000 bucks worth of glitter that nobody got in the end. Because I found out just in time what was fishy about the tale of the mermaid. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Tale of the Mermaid. At 9.30, I was still in my office, sucking in the loose ends on a report. While I listened with half an ear to the fabric of city sounds rising from the street below. Fabric ripped suddenly by tires clawing concrete. A shattering crash that followed brought me to my feet. It was a traffic accident, a bad one. I ran to the window, but it had happened around the corner out of sight from my office. So I watched others run for it and remembered grimly that every 30 seconds, somewhere in the country, 
A thing like that happened. And one out of every 16 minutes was fatal. I wondered who had been chewed up in a chromium meat grinder this time as I listened to first the police, then the emergency ambulance, and finally the scavenger truck cleaned the wreck off the street. After that, I went back to my report again and tried to forget about it. But an hour later, that same accident came back into my office. Mr. Marlowe. Yeah? This is Corey Riggs. Uh, yes, Miss Riggs. I'm a nurse at the Warwick Emergency Hospital. Uh-huh. About an hour ago, a man named Stanley Ott was brought in, and he's been calling for you. For me? He was badly injured in an automobile accident on Coenga on his way to your office. Wait a minute. Who did you say this was? I'm the nurse assigned to Mr. Ott at the hospital. I just got off duty, and I had to wait until I was relieved before I could call you. I see. Well, look, Miss Riggs, I'd like to help in any way I can, but it's 9... Mr. Marlowe, Mr. Ott gave me $250 and told me to call you. Yeah, I know, but... And he said that... I should give you 200 and keep the 50 for myself. Oh, fine. Now I get clients by proxy. I beg your pardon? Nothing. I'll be right over, Miss Riggs. I didn't know anyone named Stanley out, and I felt a little like an ambulance chaser, but I was only 15 minutes from getting to the emergency hospital. As I walked up the ambulance ramp, a smart-looking brunette came toward me. Mr. Marlowe? I'm Corey Riggs, the nurse who called. Oh, Hello. Can I see him now? It wouldn't do any good. You see, um, he went into a coma a few minutes after I called. Oh, too late, is that it? Let's move away from the door, shall we? Sure. You see, Mr. Marlowe, before he went into the coma, Art wasn't rational. He was raving. About what sort of thing? About you and a girl. Oh? As near as I could make out, she's supposed to meet someone tonight at 2 o'clock and collect $75,000. It's quite an assignment. Who's the girl? I don't know. All I said was something about a, a plaid coat as identification. Plaid coat, huh? Any idea what he wanted me to do? Chaperone, maybe? No, he, he kept pleading, stop her, stop her. She can't do it. So I'm sure that he wanted you to prevent this girl from keeping that appointment. For some reason, it seems absolutely imperative to him. Well, where was this 2 o'clock meeting supposed to take place? I have no idea. Oh, fine. So it boils down to this. A girl we don't know in a plaid coat is meeting someone we don't know at a place we don't know at 2 a.m. <laughs> The man who wants me to prevent it is in a coma and can't talk. Can he say anything else, Miss Riggs? He just kept saying, you've got to help me, Marlowe. It's life and death. You know, we can stir up an awful hornet's nest poking our noses into 75000 bucks worth of business we know nothing about. I doubt that we can do any good anyway, because we don't have enough to go on. If he said anything else, to even point uh, in the right... Marlowe. What? Oh, wait a minute. He mumbled something once about a, a constant... Constantine? Yes, it's some here. What is it, a boat? I don't know. But at least it's a lead, isn't it? Mm. Anything else? No. Okay, where can I reach you? I'll be at my quarters, Crestview 5781. 5781. And keep track of Stanley Art's condition, will you? If he comes out of it, talk to him. We've only got three short hours. I'll call you, Corey. felt a little weird as I left the hospital because I was traveling on strictly second-hand information as to what had gone on in a delirious mind. But in spite of that, there was still enough coherence in what Corey Riggs told me to make a case. My first stop was a phone booth and a call to the police, where I found out in the accident report that Stanley Ott was 30, unmarried, small-time lawyer and an L.A. resident with a clean police record. My next call was the harbor master's office in San Pedro. 
Only one listed is a four-masted schooner sunk off Pirate's Point near Monterey in 1870. A little before my time. Not the one, eh? Not the one. So I tried the Coast Guard. No fishing boat called Constantine on this coast, mister. That was followed by a check of Yacht Harbor at Long Beach, negative. And a call of the pleasure boat anchorage at Santa Monica. No Constantine registered here, sir. After that, a long, futile reconnaissance of the waterfront from one end to the other. It left me one solid hour later out at the end of a tottering, almost abandoned concession pier in Venice. Swearing in blind frustration at the black, seething ocean below. I was licked. Ain't thinking of jumping in, are you, Paul? Hey, you look like you lost your best friend. I did, Buster. Me. I was sunk with a Constantine in 1870. Constantine? Hey, you know him, too, huh? Him? Yeah. You mean Constantine's a guy? Sure, pal. There's a shack there. Uh, wait till the beacon light comes around uh, again. See? See that? Well, I'll be. <laughs> Prince Constantine Chevnov. Arcos has promised a medium personal consultant by appointment only. Yeah, but uh, that's a fake. No fool. All them guys. Uh, he owes everybody around. He, he, even at the Ziggy, me. For one buck and that's something. But he's a genuine Russian prince. Hey. Hey, where are you going? Have a look. Prince Constantine Chevnov could be my boy. He wouldn't want you nosing around here, pal. That's too bad. Does he live here? Yeah, in the back. He uh, runs his pitch in the front where uh, all them uh, uh, green curtains are. Uh huh. Yeah. I suppose he always leaves his door unlocked, huh? Oh. What? What? Who? Hey, that's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet. There'll be a light switch here someplace. Oh yeah. Now let's see what. Oh. Holy cat! Uh, goodbye, Mister. Goodbye. As the little wharf rats darted through the door and scampered away into the darkness, I went over to the body, face up on the cheap, gaudy carpet of the seance room. He was about thirty-five in a substantial gray business suit, stained red in front where the bullets had gone in. His wallet was missing. There was no other identification on him. The gray snap brim hat was spilled a few feet away, so I picked it up to look for initials and found instead a small file card stuck into the sweatband. Typed at the top was the heading The Mermaid. Owner Otis Van Owen, only relative Evelyn Van Owen, niece. Mermaid stolen November 12, 1948. Insurance paid in full. In ink, Van Owen died August 1949, and under that in pencil. Constantine Chevnov, Venice Pier, and Louis Paradise. 913 Secret Road, Pacific Palisades. It took 20 minutes to find 913 Secret. And when I stopped and got close enough from what I saw through an open window made Constantine trap I just left, looked as reliable as a post office by comparison. It was a miniature Egyptian temple, exotic and dainty, sickening lushness of red velvet and yellow silk. Out of the room with a bloated little man balancing a long cigarette holder in one hand what? while he simpered into a honey-colored French phone in the other. Was an arrangement I moved up quietly until oh, I could hear him. A, a sentimental agreement. <laughs> that is right, Evelyn. Your Uncle Otis and I were the best of friends for years. <laughs> well, thank you, child. Uh, where are you now? Oh, the servitor. Good, good. I advise you to stay there until a few minutes before two and... Uh, 
Uh, you uh, will not forget to wear a plaid coat just to be sure I won't make a mistake. What is it, buddy? What? Right, oh, you. Oh, 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 yes. uh, careful now. Sudden noises like this gun going off upset, oh, Mr. Curtis. I am looking forward to find so interesting inside. Oh, yes. Conversation. About the mermaid, probably. Uh-oh. I'm glad you dropped that one, bud, because I'd bump you for a nickel say nothing to 75G. I don't talk things over with punks. I reserve it for the head man. Go do something about it. Okay, bud, I will. Go on, move. Round to the door and inside. If the paradise gets some kind of kick out of stepping on big guys like you. The gopher face shoved his automatic into the small of my back and marched me inside where the air was thick with cheap incense. The bloated little king with a long cigarette holder had stepped out. But he came back fast when the gopher called him. He stared at me from across the room and his nostrils flared for an instant. And he simpered again and sidled toward me. The gopher dug at my spine with his gun. Well, now, what is this, you say? Snooper, Mr. Paradise. Caught him outside, peeking in the window. Oh, it is a bad night for Snooper. Who are you? Name's Marlowe. And uh, the business? Snooping. He knows about the mermaid, Mr. Paradise. He does, does he? How much do you know? Speak up. He's got a fishtail instead of legs. You dare to joke. Don't you! Dan, don't take it, big man. You asked for it. Make a move and I'll drop you. I know what you are, Marlowe, but not how much you have found out. Now tell me, because the next time I slap you, it will carry more weight than my bare hand, I promise. You have company, Paradise. Did I get it? No, you keep this baboon under control, Rudy. I will answer the door. How far do you think you can go with my reputation? Do you want to get me hanged? Wife, what is the matter, Constantine? You are upset. Upset? I'm out of my mind. Oh, what a shock. And such a stupid thing for you to do. What are oh. you raving about? He found that body on his front room floor, right, Constantine? Exactly. Precisely. And what is more, I did not put it there. Of all the places in the world, why did you pick this one? Paradise. Who is this? This stranger here? If you would close your mouth and open your eyes more often, Prince Constantine, you would not be the nervous wreck you are. This is Mr. Marlowe, another snooper. Another one? Paradise. Paradise, listen to me. It's better if we quit. It's better if we don't try it tonight. It's out of hand. I don't like it now. We should get away and come back next year and do it. Ah, you jellyfish, there is nothing to worry about now. Insurance investigators often work in pairs. Is that not so, Marlowe? Your pitch, round man. You don't need any help from me. You are so right. Rudy and I caught the first at your place, Constantine. Now we have the second one sure. here. That is all there are. The danger is over. It's over. clear ceiling from yeah, now but on. what about that cadaver you had the audacity to leave lying in my cell? Oh, what about that? me, Constantine. Oh, that me, Constantine. was a necessity. Oh, I am sorry. Now, listen. Hey, Rudy. Just go on all the time? Yeah. Ain't it awful? And think of all the champagne, caviar, and bricola, stroganoff you can buy with the mermaid. I don't care. Just a bracelet, but at the same time, it is $75,000 worth of diamonds and platinum. Oh, dada. Oh. Okay, Paradise. I trust you. Now, we go, huh? My, uh, Gnazzo. Uh, yes, Gnazzo. Hey, Mr. Paradise. Uh? What should I do with the big boy here? Yeah, you're kind of leaving a loose end around, aren't you, Fatty? If I had the time, Marlowe, I would beat the arrogance out of you a little chunk at a time. Rudy. Yeah? 
You've got no initiative, but you do have imagination. So use it. Goodbye, Marlowe. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, it's a big break in entertainment for you and a big break in a career for some talented youngsters when Horace Heights' original youth opportunity program opens the door to fame and fortune every Sunday evening on CBS. Popular Horace Heights is host to young folks who want to break into show business. And every Sunday evening, one lucky winner does break in, to his delight and your listening pleasure. Yes, for music... Comedy, thrills, and all-around fun. Listen to Horace Heights Sunday Evenings, another great CBS show heard over most of these same stations. Tune in, tune in this fall for the shows that you love best of all. Listen carefully. Here's the address. It's CBS, CBS. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story... The Tale of the Mermaid. When Louis Paradise hesitated at the door, snarled the suggestion that this henchman used his imagination in disposing of me, and left in lockstep with the white Russian screwball, I got the point. But even if I'd missed it entirely, one look into Brother Rudy's eyes would have done the trick. There were no pupils, just slits of lethal viciousness. Windows to his warped little mind where I could practically see the montage going on. It ran from ancient thumbscrews by candlelight up to a generous beating by street lamp with brass knucks. <laughs> I felt a cold knot grow in the pit of my stomach. As Rudy, with a cannon in his hand, pointed at my head, started toward me. And from someplace outside, I got a break. Two romantic cats. Rudy spun toward the sound. One chance to a customer, Rudy, and you miss. <laughs> Killed you, my lord. I'll blow your head off. Not tonight, gentle soul. Ooh. Give it to me. I don't want you to hurt yourself until we've had a chance to talk. That's it. Now, lie down. I knew there was some reason why I like cats, their voices. Okay, Rudy, you've had enough rest. Now, let's get back to business. Now, now wait a minute. Come on, wait get up. We're going to talk. Wait, hold it, please. No reason for any more rough stuff. I'll cooperate. That's better. Where did Paradise and His Highness head for? The Gnazdo, where is it? I don't know. Come on, you said there was no reason for rough stuff, remember? Ow! Yeah, yeah, I remember. That Gnazdo, that's something I never heard of. An unhappy coincidence, Rudy. It's one thing I'm interested in. Yeah, wait. Must be something else you want to know. Something else I could tell you that... Hey, hey, what are you going to do? You mean you Stay can't away. tell, Rudy? That's Keep funny. Away. All it... it takes is a little imagination. started through the place looking for all important answer to what was the Gnazdo. Twenty minutes of turning drawers and closets inside out revealed nothing more exciting than Louis Paradise's address book, first names only, and a picture of a girl named Toodles who belonged to the Roaring Twenties, and by this time should have caught a death of cold. <laughs> His sister, no doubt. But no lead on the Gnazdo. So on the slim chance that my client Stanley Ott might already be back in this world and able to help I got outside into my car and drove to the first drugstore where after checking the phone books under everything from bars to bathhouses for a gymnasio and getting no place, I called Corey Riggs at the nurse's home. No, Marlo, Stanley no. Art's still unconscious. I just talked to the night nurse on his floor. They expect him to come out of it soon. Uh, 
Why? What happened? Well, it's too much to explain now, Corey, but that girl, the one in the plaid coat, mm-hmm. I found out that her name's Evelyn Van Owen and she's staying at the Surf Hotel. Now, see if that much checks with Art when he comes to, will you? All right. Oh, also, there's a diamond-studded item called the Mermaid, which accounts for that 75000 he mentioned. Now, Constantine and the Pier now equal a phony Russian prince who runs a spook palace out on the old Venice Pier. Now, you got all that? Uh-huh. Good. Now, look, honey, listen real hard. Before Art passed out, did he by any chance say the word Ganazdo? Ganazdo? Yeah. Mm, no. What does it mean? I don't know. I, I think it's the name of a place. Oh, have you uh, checked the phone books? Yeah, yeah. It's no dice, Corey. Also, I checked one Mr. Louis Paradise, so you might uh, mention... Marlo, Marlo, wait a minute. What's Hold the matter? Wire, will you? There's a girl here, one of the nurses, who's trying to tell me something. Oh. It's the Ganazdo, Marlo. Oh. Shh, wait a minute. She knows something about it here. It's... it's... Rosemary, you talk to her. Hello. Hello. You want to know what Gnazdo means? Yeah. Well, it's Russian, like Parshlamaya Gnazdo. Oh, is so? Uh, well, what does it mean in English, Rosemary? Fast, please, is important. Well, that means let's go to my place. Gnazdo's the word for nest. Sort of like cozy apartment or cottage. My place, nest. You sure of that? Well, I'm positive. I was an army nurse in the war, and I spent two years in Germany after the shooting part was over. Two years, a half a block away from the Russian zone. That's close enough. Thanks a million, Rosemary. I don't mention it. Here's Corey. Oh. That do it, Marlowe? Yeah, I think so. At any rate, unless I'm way off base, it's where both the mermaid and all parties concerned are going to rendezvous at 2 a.m. That's less than a half hour from now. The prince is placed on the pier. I want to be early, so goodbye, Corey. I'll call again when I know more. Yeah, and give my everlasting love to girlfriend Rosemary. She all is show a peach. There was still a few parts missing, the way there always are. But as I drove fast for the old Venice Pier and added as I went along, it came out something like the theme of paradise and Prince Whatchamacallit, ready, willing, and able to pay 75 grand for a piece of jewelry that... One Evelyn Van Owen now owns a mermaid, which according to the data I'd found on the insurance man's body, had once been stolen from Evelyn's late uncle. But I left it there when my rearview mirror said a long gray sedan that had been tagging me discreetly for the last three blocks. Now being indelicate about it and closing fast. The driver was old pal Rudy, and as he came abreast, he headed for me. You're okay. You're okay, Mac. Don't you worry about a thing. We'll have you out of there in a minute, Ed. Hey, can't you knock out that horn? I knocked out the horn. What do you think we're trying to do? It ain't so easy getting my hand past the frigid hood. Hello? Oh. Oh. Well, that's better. Hey. Hey, Cabby, what'd I hit? Well, in order of their appearance, Ooh. Mac, your car into a telephone pole, and then you into your dashboard. Oh, yeah, you're sure lucky you bounced off the curb first, Mr. Okay. Slowed you down plenty. Oh, hey, here comes the argument. Yeah. Look at the roll. Not for me. I'm all right. Hey, come on, Cabby, help me out of this, will you? Sure, sure, that's what we're trying to do, but uh, don't you worry, the ambulance ain't for you. For the guy that sideswiped you and then tried to get away. I seen what happened, and I went after him in my cab. <laughs> he turned into a dead end, no less, trying to shake me. Ooh, is he a mess. But I guess he'll live all right. Hey, what you got against you, anyhow, Mac? Just my life. Listen, your cab's still all right? 
Sure, there's some place you gotta go? There is. The old Venice concession's here, my friend, and the sooner the better. Come on. Leaving my head against the dashboard was exactly what I'd needed. Because right then and there, the method of Rudy's handiwork made me think of an angle that I'd neglected almost completely. My unconscious client had not wanted me to get the mermaid or the 75,000 bucks. But to stop Evelyn from keeping her rendezvous, which at this point I figured would mean but one thing. It was exactly two o'clock when the cab's plan was stopped near the pier. And I piled out and ran onto the empty, fog-dampened planking that led to Prince Constantine's shack. Nothing but mist moved over the pier. No unusual sound broke the pattern of waterfront noises. And I thought momentarily that I was still in time to prevent what Stanley out somehow knew was going to happen. That Louis Paradise and his eccentric sidekick intended to get the mermaid from Evelyn, but pay off in only one... one way. I ran to the rear of the shack on stilts and got close to the half-open door where I could see and hear and found out just what I'd expected. In the storeroom spread out and very still on the oil-soaked planks that were a makeshift floor with a lifeless form. A girl. Who, according to the plaid coat she wore, was the late Evelyn Van Orn. And kneeling close to a gun in one hand, the sparkling mermaid in the other, is her executioner, Louis Paradise. Next to him is number one boy, Prince Constantine Chevno. Not very happy. A fool, a fool to shoot her was stupid. Yeah. Seventy-five grand, stupid. Yeah. Or would you have preferred that I pay Miss Van Owen in cash? I had to kill her. Yes, 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 Paradise, but the gun, so much noise, we can't afford to attract that thing. There's two corpses on hand, I should say not, Chris. They don't try it, Louis. Oh, the mermaid. The space between the boards. The mermaid. Oh. In the water, Chevnov. Shame. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it's a shame. We did so much, worked so hard. Yeah, killed so often. And a run for it, Your Highness? Run? No. No, paradise is dead there. Without paradise, I... I am not so brave. I will do as you say. Keep quiet. Don't make a sound, Chef. No, we got company. Quiet! Pardon me, Mr. Chef. Can you please tell me where Louis Paradise can be... It's Louis Paradise there. Who are you? Evelyn Van Owen. What? Van Owen. The woman who was supposed to sell the mermaid to Paradise? That's right. But on my way over here, just after I left my hotel, somebody struck me, knocked me out. Took my my coat there and, and my purse and ran. Your purse with the mermaid, no doubt. Yes. And that, Miss Van Owen, makes this angle shooter here... Yeah. The very dead nurse, Corey Riggs. Let's get out of here. Well, there's nothing to worry about, Miss Van Stanley's going to be all right. Oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> Why is it women always cry when they're so happy? I don't know, but it's effective. Well, I'll run along now. Goodbye. Bye, doctor. You know, Mr. Marlowe, when I was in Stanley's room with the doctor, Stan said he didn't lose control of his car at all when he had that accident in front of your place. He was run off the road by... by... a great sedan, I know, because I had the same treatment. One of Louis Paradise's henchmen, 
Rudy, where's your car, honey? I'll walk you out. Just outside the front door. Mm-hmm. Tell me, did I tell you why Rudy roughed him up? Yes, in a way. You see, I told Stanley about the deal with the mermaids, and he thought it all sounded a little phony. Can't understand why. He's a lawyer, you know. A legal type mind, uh, yeah. He said meeting anyone at two in the morning was ridiculous, so he investigated as much as he could because he was worried about me. We're engaged, you No, know. I never would have guessed. And, and he found out that Mr. Paradise was a fence. And Stan said that probably he never intended to give me the $75,000 for the mermaid at all. But they, they intended to kill me. Mm, here we are. Tell me, why did you get in touch with Paradise in the first place? I was just following Uncle Otis's instructions. Mm-hmm. He gave me the mermaid when he was dying. And he told me if I wanted money to sell it only to a Mr. Paradise, but, but not to mention it to anyone. Your uncle faked the robbery, collected the insurance money, and then let you sell the mermaid to a fence, huh? It's lucky for you that Nurse Tory Riggs was clever. She put together just enough of Otis's gibberish to know that there was something good to be had and then got me to unravel it for her. She got killed taking my place. When she tried to collect your 75000 bucks. Yeah. Oh, here's my car. Well, Evelyn, for a little while you were a rich woman. Now it's all gone. How do you feel? Well, I'm alive and in love. Yes, well, that answers my question. Good night, baby. And good luck. When I left the hospital, I wandered back to the old Venice Pier in Prince Constantine's Gnazdo. It was five in the morning and the police had finished cleaning the place up. But the word had gotten out. A crowd had gathered. They always do. Curious, restless, sordid crowd, equipped with everything from grappling hooks to homemade diving helmets, all climbing over each other for a chance to fish for the mermaid. She would brought death to three people, injury to two others in the course of one night. And suppose they found her. What then? A lot of glittering pieces of white coal set in a metal frame we call precious. Look at the sucker's grass. That's all, Marlowe. Home and to bed. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Donnelly, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Rita Lynn, John Daner, Michael Ann Barrett, Wilms Herbert, Junius Matthews, Herb Vigran, and Mark Lawrence. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Oran. Be sure and be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with a terrified woman lost in a maze of memories she couldn't explain. And waiting for outside an open window was death. And that was The Adventures of Sam Spade, followed by The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Glorious. Well, that's all we have time for on this noir edition 
of Attaboy Clarence. I'll be back later this week for patrons with a bonus noir show. If you want to hear that, along with over 60 bonus editions of Attaboy Clarence, then go to www.patreon.com slash attaboysecret or look for the link in the show notes. See you next week then, my friends. Until then, take very good care of yourselves. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and e-books, and every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.